www.hdp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you happen to be a first-time listener, we're especially glad that you've joined us here at 88.7. And yes, we not only broadcast locally, but through the internet around the world. And so some people leave and they say, hey, we miss our our station, 88.7. And I tell them, well, do you know we are on the internet? And so we have people who listen through the internet as well. And so that's at WAGP.net. But for those of you who are new for the next hour, we will be taking people's uh, questions. Maybe there's a challenge that you have faced in your personal life or ministry, and you'd like biblical help or counsel or a challenging passage you're trying to understand. Well, if we can help, by God's grace, we will do the best we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone again locally. It's 843 843- 525-1859, toll-free at 877. The call letters WAGP 980. Or if you'd like, you could just email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL. That stands for The Bible Line, TBL at WAGP.net. Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started. All right. We already had somebody call in this morning and they dictated their question. They've got a bit of a complicated situation. Uh, this individual's parents are divorced and are not believers and live with partners who are not believers. The caller wants to know what you would uh, recommend for a way to get his parents and their respective partners to hear the truth of the gospel and to become believers. Should he start by inviting them to church, if they will come, or with a private appointment with you? He is burdened for their salvation and would just like some guidance. So if I understand this, they have divorced from each other and they're living with people that they're not married to. That appears to be the case. Yeah. So uh, it's uh, unfortunately, it's, it's become more and more of a norm. The number of even older Americans who are living in sexual immorality is just, uh, it's, it's a growing thing. Uh, with that said, obviously, you, they need Christ. They need forgiveness. And God wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God's not against them. He's for them. And he does not want to send them to the eternal judgment that uh, is the end for those who don't trust Christ and call upon him in faith. So uh, you want to pray for sensitivity in terms of to measure their spiritual temperature. So different people need to be approached differently. Christ dealt with Nicodemus in a very s- specific way, but differently from the way he dealt, say, with the woman at the well and some people that he wouldn't even dialogue with. So you have to measure their spiritual temperature to see where they are at. And it might be that they are very open and you can invite them to church. It might be that you know right off that an invitation to church would be immediately refused, in which case uh, you can uh, maybe invite them to a bridge event. We have a lot of bridge events at CBC 
in trying to reach the unchurched. We were just discussing this morning our fall festival that will take place the uh, first Saturday in November, and the following day is Friend Day for people to especially try to reach out to someone that's unchurched or unsaved and and to bring them to church on that particular Sunday. But sometimes a person will come to a bridge event, like a men's wildlife supper or a woman's tea or a fall festival or an oyster roast or different things that we will have, and they sense, you know, there's something here that maybe I am missing. Uh, These people are different. And so sometimes the Spirit of God will use that to then uh, allow you to have a conversation or for them to come to church. There are a couple of uh, things that I host uh, I was uh, waiting the other day in this new break place right next to Dunkin' Donuts to get my brakes fixed, and I got in a dialogue with actually a number of people. That it's just like one person would get up and leave, the next person would take their seat, and God would turn the conversation to spiritual things. So I, I know his hand was there. But, um, for instance, one person I dialogued with, I asked them, I said, by the way, here's how I approached it. I said, hey, by the way, do you go to church anywhere? And this individual said, no, he said he didn't go to church anywhere. And I said, well, did you grow up going to church? He said, I did, but I haven't been to church in years. And I said, you know, I'm always interested where people are at in their journey because I want to encourage them. I believe that's what God has called me to do. They didn't even know I was a pastor yet. And I said, can I ask you a question? Sure. And so I asked him the first diagnostic question. I said, on a scale of zero to 100, zero, I have no idea. A hundred, I have no doubt. How sure are you if you were to die in the next minute that you would go to heaven? Are you 25, 50, 75, 100? He said, I'm like 50, 50. And I said, well, uh, look, um, and I knew I only had a couple of minutes and I, I didn't want to clog up the whole waiting room and turn it into a preachimony. So I had to be sensitive there. But I said, you know, I host a meeting. I'm actually a pastor. He said, you are? I said, yeah. And I told him the church. He said, is that the church, the, the, the big, tall church? And I said, yeah, that's, that's the church I pastor. And I said, a couple times a month, I host a meeting called Meet the Pastor. And I said, it's designed with several groups of people in mind, but many like yourself who really don't know that if in the next minute, if you were to die, that you would go to heaven. And then I kind of put a carrot out there. And I very gently said, I said, you probably have read enough of the Bible to know that the Bible teaches that if you're not sure and you were to die, that you actually wouldn't go. And that's not God's heart. God's heart is he desires all men to be saved. So I said, getting this issue settled in your mind is like super important. And so I told him of two Meet the Pastors I had coming up. And, of course, uh, the next one will be, let's see, August the 29th at 7.15. Maybe there's someone listening to me right now, and you're unsure of your salvation. Uh, So that was another avenue. And so sometimes friends will bring their friends and say, hey, our pastor does this uh, discussion and overview of the Bible and it lasts about an hour, and you, when you come in, you can write down any questions that you would like to ask. And um, people come in, and it's different every week. Sometimes three show up, sometimes 30 show up. We never know from time to time who is going to come and whom God is going to bring. And, and sometimes God really just caters that hour, like we had one week, and it was unusual, and that none of our visitors came, but four Mormon missionaries showed up. And that was providential because God obviously did not want any of our people who are searching and visiting 
to be in there that night with four Mormon missionaries. And, of course, dealing with those guys was an entirely different approach than I might typically do at a meet the pastor. So you have several options. Test the waters. See how open they are. Um, I have a DVD entitled, Would You Like to Know God is Your Friend? You could give them that and say, hey, would you give me your opinion on that? It's also online at uh, searchthescriptures.org or at um, communitybiblechurch.us. Is it on the uh, WAGP website too, Rick? It is. And so uh, WAGP.net and say, hey, would you watch this with me or watch it on your own and tell me what you think? Give me your opinion. You know, you disarm people sometimes when you ask them for their opinion rather than to say, look, I know you have the marks of a lost person and you're headed towards hell. And, and I would say on occasion to a person, let's say they're living in a habitual adulterous relationship, and they say, well, I am a Christian. I would say to them, well, I'm obviously not your judge, but I can tell you what the New Testament teaches, that if a person is practicing a lifestyle of adultery, and I would bring them to uh, Ephesians chapter 5, or Ephesians 4, I would bring them to Galatians 5, I'd bring them to 1 Corinthians 6, and those would be three central passages. Then among other sins, it says if this is your lifestyle, you are giving proof positive that you probably don't know Christ as your Savior. And so all I would say to them, I said, well, again, I'm not your judge, but I know in the end, you know, the Bible is God's Word, and it would give you very little assurance that you know Christ, for you to be able to live in a lifestyle of adultery and not come under the discipline of Almighty God. So again, you're, you're, you're praying for wisdom and uh, that God would give you discernment as to how to approach them. And yeah, if they were willing to come in and meet with me personally, I'll meet with them. I'll meet with anyone who wants to hear the plan of salvation. All right, let's go to the next caller. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Thank you for taking my call. How are you? Uh, fine. Thanks for calling today. Go ahead. Yeah. Thank you for taking the call. I have a question. Yes. My question is about um, versions of the Bible. And first, I'm not a King James-only person, but I do prefer that and the NASB because I'm concerned about some of the newer versions that are removing the blood and becoming more liberal. And I do believe in the verbal and plenary inspiration of Scripture, and I do understand that a version or is not inerrant, if you understand what I mean. Yes. But I was wondering if you have something you could share about that, because I'm just kind of concerned about finding translations to use or versions to use when it seems like everyone's pushing the ESV, and I'm just not a big fan. Well, yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. So um, if you really want to study this in great, great detail, uh, I would direct you to the Institute of Biblical Studies. It's a series of courses that I offer and if you call Search the Scriptures, you can um, get all the information that you need via Search the Scriptures. Uh, we offer those courses. They're basically taught on a master's level, with the exception that the assignments are not done on a master's level. But people take them for credit, uh, and they are seeking to get what's called a, a one-year Bible degree. Like if someone wanted to become a missionary, uh, they would require typically some kind of seminary degree or at the minimum a Bible certificate. So this would be an equivalent to a Bible certificate. It's about 35 hours of study. 
and it covers the various realms of theology. And so one of the courses I offer is on the subject of bibliology. And bibliology, of course, is the study of God's Word. And so um, in Section 6 of that course, I deal with the whole subject of uh, various translations. And so you say you like the King James and the NASB. Those are both great translations of the Bible, though I should say that sometimes uh, people will accuse the New American Standard of being a liberal translation and uh, that um, they've removed the blood out of the Bible. And it's somewhat of a silly argument. It's not a thinking argument because it's just not really true. Um, If you look at the number of times in the King James, the term blood in reference to Christ's blood is mentioned, it's 98 times. If you look in the New American Standard in reference to the use of the word blood that it's used, it's 97 times. And so there's one verse, uh, and this is what becomes the issue of debate. Uh, Occasionally, we have manuscripts where the individual copy of a manuscript had a person's notes in it. Like if you opened my Bible this morning, you might find notes out in the margin where I've put some kind of notation. It's my own personal note. The only difference is they didn't have margins when they used paper in the early centuries. And so most people, of course, didn't have their own copy of the Scripture. And so the way you would make a copy is you would have, you might go to a place where there was a depository of God's Word, and you might sit there with your own expensive piece of papyri, and you would copy. And as you copied, you might also end up putting some notes in there. And Or occasionally, because you are committed so deeply to the Word of God, maybe you've memorized a verse of Scripture where in one text it reads a particular way, and in another text it reads differently. And so you end up from your memory writing the way it reads in one text rather than actually carefully copying. Now, there are different people who copied the Word of God. There were scribes who were professional copiers. And the way a scribe copied Scripture was very different from if I wanted my own personal copy. Not to say that that meant every personal copy was sloppy, because it was not. They viewed it as God's Word. But sometimes persons would put notes in it. And so what would happen is, is hey, I heard you have a copy of um, the book of Colossians. Could I, could I copy yours? And sure, and you may end up copying my note with it, and then a whole new family of manuscripts are found. So, for instance, in uh, Colossians chapter 1, you know, some people, King James only folks typically will say, well, Colossians 1.14 doesn't have the blood of Jesus in it, and it's in the King James. But just a few verses later, in Colossians 1 and verse 20, it speaks the blood of the blood of his cross. So, again, that's the only difference. We're talking about 98 times versus 97 times. And that's true, by the way, in most of the other modern Uh, English translations. Now, it is true, though, that there are some translations of God's Word that, in my view, are not as accurate. 
And so, and some that are beginning to even be distorted. For instance, when the New International Version came out in 1984, sometimes I'll reference the NIV, and now in newer messages, I'll say NIV 84. Why? Because I don't really want to endorse the NIV 2011. It came out online in 2010, on paper in 2011. So the NIV 84, it's a different kind of translation. It's what we would call a, uh, it's not in the truest sense in a dynamic equivalent. Um, it is uh, a little bit different. It's a combination of paraphrase and literal. So there are different kinds of translations of God's word. The, a true literal translation, you know, we often call the NASB or the Um, New American Standard, a literal translation. In the truest sense, it's not, in that you are not word for word going from the original into the receptor language, in our case, English, because the word order in Greek is very, very different. So there are uh, decisions that are made linguistically uh, to create sentences in English subject, verb, object, where sometimes in... Greek, you could have the object as the first word in the sentence or even the verb. And they moved even words around from the expected structure in order to put emphasis. It was their way of uh, using modern italics or their way of underlining or highlighting something to underscore the truth of, of, uh, of something. So, um, so when we speak of a literal translation, what we are saying, though, is that as much as possible, we put a word-to-word relationship between what God inspired into the receptor language. So like the NIV had two goals. They had readability and literalness. Uh, The King James and the New American Standard had the same identical two goals, but they put literalness first and readability second. And so that is, you know, important. In fact, most people who exposit the word verse by verse by verse, they don't use the NIV, never did, because it's just not as accurate. And, you know, God has given me training in Hebrew and Greek, and and when I'm interfacing with the original, you know, texts of the Bible, I just see the beauty of the New American Standard. And the King James is a great translation. Before that, it was the Bishop's Bible. The early Americans didn't use the King James. They used the Bishop's Bible. But there came a point where the Bishop's Bible, the language was becoming so archaic, they needed a newer translation. Uh, The language, even in the King James, when people say, oh, I believe in the old translation of the King James, in deference, say, the newer translation we call the New King James, they're actually not even using the 1611. It's just an argument from ignorance. They're using the 1738. It was actually the fifth revision of the King James Bible. And so a lot of changes were under being uh, taking place in the English language. And so they had to, um, you know, update the language to reflect what people could understand. And that still happens in our day. So um, the NIV uh, will sometimes admit words to make it more readable, a little more paraphrastic, um, and they're what we call a dynamic equivalent, whereas the King James, the New American Standard, 
Uh, they're more of what we call a, a formal equivalent. Some would use the term years ago, fluid equivalent. Today, it's more the term formal equivalent. Here's the challenge with the NIV. Is there was another translation that came out, also put out by Zondervan, called the TNIV. And it was called Today's New International Version. And they wanted to come out with a um, translation that was gender sensitive. And of course, a number of Christian people at the time, biblical scholars, translators, Christian leaders of different organizations who were recruited, and they begged Zondervan not to do that, that we don't need anything that is politically correct. And so Zondervan said, we will not do it. They promised that they would not do it. They lied and went ahead and proceeded with the translation into everyone's shock three years later they announced the TNIV. Um, certainly there are things in the TNIV that are not like wicked. For instance, when I use the word men, do I mean like, you know, all men have sinned? I'm including in that term in English women as well. It's a non-generic use of the word men. Now there is a word for men that refers to the male gender in deference to women. But usually, like the word anthropos, we get our word anthropology from. It would be translated men, and it's used generically to include women as well. So in the TNIV, they said people, as in some other newer translations. That's okay. That's legitimate. But when you have a problem like, I don't like the word he because it's too masculine. So now I'm going to change it to the word they when God inspired a singular pronoun that changes the whole meaning of the verse. And that's what the TNIV did. Well, in 2011, the NIV came out and they bled together the NIV 84 and the TNIV, and it's a mixture of the two. And I cover these things in the course on bibliology. I show you verses that you can say, well, here's how it reads in the NIV. Here's how it reads in the NAS or the ESV or the New King James or the King James. And, and I do a comparison and I show you the difference. Now, the ESV, I'm, you know, here were here all these guys who were using the NIV. Uh, and most of them were not expositors. They really did not preach expositorily. But you've got guys who are preaching verse by verse, like an Erwin Lutzer or John MacArthur or... Uh, you know, a Tony Evans and these other, they all use the NASB. Why? Because they were, you know, trained in the original languages and they saw the beauty and the preciseness and the accuracy reflected in a uh, reflection of modern English. Um, so all these guys are using the NIV and then the ESV comes out. I'm not wild about the ESV. Is it a decent translation? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, and there are some times the way they reflect it, it's well done. But sometimes they put out in the margin a verse that I don't think belongs in the margin. I belong. I think it belongs in the body of Scripture. And I go through some of these verses that they do it. The bigger also difficulty I have is that usually most editions of a Bible have now an official Bible study version. And so with the ESV, they have their own study Bible. And to me, some of the notes were poorly done. And the scholarship did not reflect really solid scholarship. And they came up with explanations that were weak. 
And so that alone is enough to discourage me from really promoting the ESV. Anyway, if you if you want to study, you've asked an armchair question, and I think you know the the course on bibliology has over five hundred pages in it, and no taking outlines. And I spend quite a bit on in section six on our English Bible, and I do an evaluation of not only dynamic equivalents and formal equivalents, but paraphrastic versions, like the, like the message. You know, navigators came out with the message, and they made millions of dollars off of it. And I actually quoted once the message. I thought it was probably a decent paraphrase until I actually started reading it. I said, man, I'll never quote this again because I don't want to give endorsement to it. Like, for instance, if you have a message Bible, pull up 1 Corinthians 6 and the list of sins that God gives of such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And interestingly, he leaves out homosexuality. Hmm. I wonder why. And they lauded this guy, because usually paraphrase translations are done by one person as a scholar. And as I looked and probed into his background, I don't think he's a scholar at all, in linguistically or otherwise. I think he's a liberal. And uh, he sold the evangelical church a translation that was less than faithful. But again, the course in bibliology, I go through all these things. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. We had a caller who um, has a question not very often asked, but probably one other Christians have pondered. Is it okay for a Christian to have cosmetic surgery? Specifically, is it acceptable for a Christian man to have a hair transplant surgery where they take the scalp from the back of the head and put it on the front if balding truly bothers him? Well, I don't think there's anything that necessarily prohibits it. It might be a, um, by the way, I've never had my, my a hair transplant, so I'm not, but, but I would say that it might not be the best stewardship and sometimes people just need to accept we're, we're going to get old and we're, we're getting old. And, uh, but there is some cosmetic surgery that is necessary. I, I sat in a eye doctor's office and he said, you're probably going to need cosmetic surgery someday on your eyelids. I said, what's wrong with my eyelids? He said, well, they're, they're kind of heavy. And he said, eventually he said, it would be like looking out with a baseball cap on because your eyelids were, yeah. What is he talking about? Then he gave me the card of a friend who did cosmetic surgery, and I thought, this seems to me like more of a sales job, and it was on a Monday when I'm exhausted, usually having put in a 70-hour week, and I'm sure my eyelids were hanging and had very little to do with my need for cosmetic surgery. But there are stewardship issues that are certainly involved, and sometimes we just need to accept we're we're getting old. Um so, but my point is, is there are some people who need, they would call that cosmetic surgery. The insurance company would not cover it, but we had a member of our church who told me, and she had it done and she died a month later, but her daughter said she sure did look good in her coffin. And, uh, anyway, she, uh, she had these heavy, heavy eyelids where she was, you know, she was like wearing a baseball cap. Her, her vision was obstructed. And she had the uh, surgery done. Anyway, uh, good question. Let's go to the next. Yeah, if anybody gives that caller a rough time, just point them to Second Kings 2, where Elijah is called baldy by some yeah, guys. Yeah, that's and he right. Old bald a curse on him. <laughs> My son Jordan used to love to quote that. Anyway, too, yeah. yeah. All right, 843 525 1859. And is it, uh, <clears throat> you've, this listener says, I've heard you teach, and I agree 
that during the millennial reign, there will be people on earth in glorified and unglorified bodies, those from the tribulation. Isaiah 65, 20 teaches that in those days, the people in unglorified bodies will be accursed if they do not live to an old age. What would happen to those who die during the millennial reign? Would the saved reappear in spirit in that moment and live with Christ again for the remainder of the millennium? Would the lost go to hell in that moment? Well, it's a good question. By the way, we are coming to this whole issue of those who will enter the millennium in their natural bodies. Uh, the church will first be taken out in the rapture, will be caught up, and then a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation will unfold. A high percentage of the earth's population will perish and the judgments that will come. Uh, many of God's people who refuse to take the 666 mark of the beast will perish. In fact, Jesus said none would have survived if it had gone on. So my amillennial friends who... Uh, basically spiritualize and allegorize the book of Revelation and uh, ipso facto uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 where they argue it's all historical with the exception of Christ coming on the clouds in glory. Uh, It's not, and you cannot ignore some of the plain statements that Jesus made. And in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus basically virtually quotes what the prophet Daniel says will happen at the end of time. In Daniel 12, he's speaking of Israel, God's people Israel, and Jesus takes the same thing, but of course he applies it to everyone living on the planet. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So Jesus is teaching us that had the tribulation period kept going, everybody would be dead. But for the sake of the elect, God needed some people who would literally physically enter his kingdom. And he's going to teach lessons of through people who enter in their natural bodies. Now, the problem with a post-tribulational rapture is if all of God's people are caught up at the end of the tribulation and we receive glorified bodies and then we come down, um, then no one could die during the tribulation because you, your body will be like Christ. So there are people, and there are other examples why that just position totally falls apart. And some people recognize it falls apart, so they just even get rid of the whole tribulation. The only next event is Jesus coming back. There is no tribulation. Tribulation is just hardship in life. And, of course, there's tribulation in this world. Jesus said you will have tribulation. But be of good courage. I've overcome the world. But that's not the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble that Jeremiah the prophet speaks of, that's still yet futuristic, and that has never happened. So here's what will happen. The church will be caught up. A seven-year period will unfold. A lot of folks will die, unbelievers, as well as even tribulation saints. Then Christ will come back. There will be a resurrection of the Old Testament dead. There will be a resurrection of tribulation saints' bodies. We're coming back in our glorified bodies to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. There will, however, be people who will enter the tribulation, believers in their natural bodies. There's a number of judgments. We will study at least four different judgments that are still yet futuristic as we work through the Revelation. And one of those judgments that happens at the end of the seven year is the sheep-goats judgment. And Christ's 
basically says how you treated Israel, the least of these my brethren, gives evidence to whether or not you were one of mine. You know, when did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? When did we visit you in prison, et cetera, et cetera? To the, whenever you did to the least of these, my brethren, he's talking about his Jewish people, you did it unto me. And so the way those treat Israel during the time of the tribulation will give evidence of whether or not they're believers, just like those who treated Jews during the time of the Holocaust. Corey Temboom, she gave evidence that she was born again. Look, we're willing to risk our own lives to do what is right. And that's what so many people did. And of course, she ended up going to one of the prison camps. Her sister died. And um, by the way, that's a great movie to watch with your children, The Hiding Place. Uh, Billy Graham produced one. I think there was another one also that was produced. But that would give them a great education on that future time. Well, in Isaiah 65, it says, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So there's a little debate amongst conservative Bible-believing scholars as to who he is referring to. Uh, clearly, what we do learn that during the millennial kingdom, ages will be protracted like during the time of uh, before the flood, where people live six, seven, eight hundred years. Some think that no believers will be able to die during the millennial reign of Christ, and that what he's describing here are unbelievers who, through rebellion in Christ, ruling like a rod of iron, their life will be extinguished. In either case, to answer your question for the sake of argument, let's just assume that there are believers who die during the time of the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, Though the Scripture does not speak of it, it's the only resurrection it does not speak of, uh, then they would have to be resurrected at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, and I would assume that they would live in the New Jerusalem until that thousand years were, were, was over. Um, some think that no believers will die during the millennial reign, and when we see people eating of the tree of life in heaven, that those are the people who are eating of the tree of life and receiving at that point their glorified bodies. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to explain this in great detail as we continue our exposition of the book of Revelation. So hang in there. We're not far away from it. Let's go to the next question. A reminder, if you have uh, missed any of the questions in today's Bible line, you can always listen to them on the archives at wagp.net. And we just had a call from an individual who would like to know if you have ever done a message or messages comparing Christianity to Islam, and have you by chance given lessons on how to answer questions when someone is quoting the Quran as the word of God, when we know in the Bible is the only true word of God? Well, the, you're right. The Bible is the only true word of God, and they both can't be right. In fact, there are 109 verses in the Quran that speak against Jews and Christians. And if you go to the Temple Mount today, on the outside of a shrine, it's called the Dome of the Rock, are verses from 
the Quran that says basically kill the Trinitarians. It's a very hateful place. Uh, people say, well, Islam is a peaceful religion. Not true Islam. What you want today, if someone's a Muslim, is you'd like them to be a westernized Muslim. You'd kind of like them to be a nominal Christian. We have nominal Christians, obviously, in the country who have never been born again. You don't want to be a nominal Christian because if you die as a nominal Christian, you'll die lost. You want to be a born-again Christian because you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Well, ideally, in America, we don't want really true Muslims because they will not be friendly towards our culture. We want nominal Muslims if we have anything. Um, But I don't have a message specifically. I do have a message where I compare Zoroasterism with uh, Christianity. In fact, that's in a series on apologetics that Ken Ham has put out. I did a uh, I did three different chapters, How to Prove the Bible is True, in one of the volumes. I did another one on postmodernism, and I still did another one on Zoroasterism. Uh, but the principles would apply to those three chapters, because I do, well, an analysis of what really is our authority. And that, by the way, is a great series to have. Um, it's it's on Christian apologetics. If you typed in my name, Answers in Genesis, uh, postmodernism or uh, Zoroasterism, it would come up and you could see those three volumes. But in the one on world religions, someone else does one on Islam, and it's very well done. And you might want to get that volume just to read his chapter on Islam and how it is definitely different. Uh, take, for instance, uh, we as Jews and Christians say that Abraham set out to offer Isaac on top of Mount Moriah. In the Quran, it says Abraham set out to offer Ishmael. Now, look, both can't be right. We're talking about two different sons. So there are obviously major, major differences. And, of course, one of the things I bring out in my book that is available on Amazon, and I make zero money from it, when we listed it on Amazon, I said, I don't want to make 10 cents on a booklet. I don't want to make one cent. I want to sell it what they'll allow me to sell it for at cost, so I make zero on it. And in that little booklet, How to Prove the Bible is True, I I note that the Bible is the only book with fulfilled prophecy. There are no fulfilled prophecies in the Quran, zero. When those four Mormon missionaries came in to our Meet the Pastor meeting a few months ago, I reminded them there are zero prophecies in the Book of Mormon, not one. So what distinguishes the Bible when I go through five proofs, one of the five proofs to say the Bible is the only book God wrote among other proofs, is it's the only book that has fulfilled prophecy. If God alone knows the future, then God can tell the future. And so he demonstrates that he foretells the future through prophecies that were made ever before they happened and they were literally fulfilled. And that was one of the marks of a true prophet. You couldn't just come along and say, well, I'm a prophet of God. Let me tell you what's going to happen a thousand years from now. Because you'd be saying, well, I won't be around in a thousand years. How do I know whether it's going to happen or not? 
So you not only told long-range prophecies, you told short-range prophecies. And by the way, even Jesus, he filled three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And one of his offices is prophet. He did what Moses said every true prophet would do. So he gave short-range prophecies, some that were fulfilled in his life, some that were fulfilled shortly after his life. We were talking a few minutes ago about Christ being on the Mount of Olives, and he looked at the temple building, and the disciples are like scratching their head because on Sunday, the people are proclaiming Jesus is Messiah, and he receives it. And so even if you knew a little bit of the Bible, you knew the great messianic prophet prophecies that dealt with the fact that Messiah was going to rule from the Temple Mount. Isaiah 2 speaks of that in the first four verses. The Messiah literally, physically is going to be on the Temple Mount, and he is going to rule his kingdom there. Well, these guys are looking, and they say, you know, Jesus had just said on the day he entered Jerusalem that the place was going to be destroyed. And then they look up at the buildings, and they kind of like these two, and Jesus said, not one stone will remain upon another. That was a short-range prophecy. And when one of the Roman soldiers torched the temple, all the gold that covered the inside and outside began to melt, and it went in between the rocks. In Josephus, a first-century Jewish historian, records in great detail what took place. And among other things, the Roman soldiers, in seeking the spoils of war, literally pried apart each rock to retrieve the gold that had melted between those. And that was a short-range prophecy. There's no such thing in the Quran. So that's the biggest thing. It's an issue of authority. You see, everyone has an authority. It might be their opinion. They think their authority uh, comes from what they think. And so they can pontificate from their own opinion. Or for other people, it's the Book of Mormon or the Quran. The question is, is your authority true? And so only the Bible is true, and that's what I kind of cover. But again, there's a whole separate article in dealing with the, if you're just trying to understand Islam and the various sects within Islam, that would be a great article in Kim, Ken Ham's series on uh, world religions. How about that uh, book, uh, Kingdom of the Cults? Kingdom of the Cults uh, doesn't really deal with Islam so much. So uh, that was done by Walter Martin in the 1960s, and it was updated in the 80s by Ravi Zacharias. But it's dealing more with, like, Jehovah's Witness, Baha'i, aberrations of Christianity. Uh, But it, it does touch on it. But I would say probably the best thing would be this article that's included in that apologetics book. Very good. Jeffrey from Roundo, South Carolina, writes, I've heard some people say Jesus was a Pharisee. I know that his observance of Torah and other teachings probably lined up with the Pharisees, but I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it explicitly refers to him as a Pharisee. Your comments, please, sir? No, Jesus was not a Pharisee. So there were about 6,000 Pharisees who lived during the time Jesus walked on the earth. The word is a Greek word that means separated one. And so they separated themselves as religious men. And some aspects of their separation was true, were true. And not all Pharisees were hypocrites. Uh, Nicodemus, who was a leader amongst the Pharisees, the article is present. He was called the teacher of the Jews uh, in John chapter 3. 
he came with a seeking heart. In the book of Acts, there are some Pharisees who are converted. So not all Pharisees were hypocrites, but for the most part, the Pharisees uh, took the law and they created their own man-made applications over the law. And, you know, they got bent out of shape over things that they should not have been bent out of shape. And Jesus, on a number of occasions, called them uh, to on, put them on the mat and said, hey, look, you're not even consistent with the way you think. If your animal falls in the ditch on the Sabbath, you're surely going to show compassion. Yet I show compassion on this man's arm that I just healed, and you're all over me. So they weren't even consistent in the way they think. And, of course, that's typical of all legalism. They were legalists. Um, but with that said, the most scathing message, maybe in the whole of the Bible, certainly in the New Testament, is found in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees. And he shows how they were in danger of headed for of being headed for an eternity without the Lord. But Jesus was not a Pharisee. So wherever you heard that, no one believes that. Um, there's not even outside, you know, secular sources that would say Jesus was a Pharisee. And clearly he was not condemning himself in that scathing message in Matthew 23. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and Elizabeth listening to us, up in Portland, Maine, writes, My adult son became discouraged not finding a godly Christian woman and began looking online. He met a divorced woman six months ago with two young toddlers. Her divorce was not adultery-related. How can I convince him that he is risking his salvation if he continues to repeat his sin and marry a divorced woman? He repeatedly lies about being with her. I pray nonstop for his soul. Well, Elizabeth, you're obviously heartbroken because you are convinced that your son is doing something that is wrong. And indeed he is. Um, if he's really saved, this is not something that could sever his eternal security. But sometimes people will do things because they are infatuated. Again, I don't know what kind of uh, physical expressions are being offered in this relationship. He's never been married. He's marrying a woman who obviously had been married before and had been sexually active. And sometimes uh, what will happen, and it can work both ways, is a person will then prey on the other person, uh, physically seduce them. And in the process, uh, they, you know, get really infatuated. You're, you're giving yourself away physically when you engage in sex prior to marriage and it becomes extremely confusing. And so now he's hiding it. These are not good signs, obviously not good signs. And so I would remind him statistically, while about 50% of first marriages end in divorce, about 75% of second marriages end in divorce. And even if he thought, you know, sometimes people, you know, they plea for a biblical grounds for their first marriage having been dissolved, that, oh, my wife, you know, committed adultery or my husband committed adultery. You're arguing that that was not even true. So even some who take the exception clause to refer to adultery after marriage, giving the innocent party freedom to remarry, he doesn't even have that. 
Um, so what you might want to do is get him to listen to a message I did. You can find it at searchthescriptures.org. And if you search for by scripture, go to Matthew's gospel, go to Matthew 19. And I do a very carefully thought through sermon on the subject of marriage and divorce. And again, even if uh, he were in that camp where they take the exception clause, which I do not, because I don't think it fits the pattern in the rest of the New Testament to refer to adultery after marriage, giving the innocent party freedom to remarry. But even if he thought he had that, he doesn't even have that. And so he is headed towards something that God expressly says, whatever position you take in divorce. Now, there are some who say, doesn't matter. I mean, you want to marry someone, uh, forget it. Just, just, just marry him if you want. But at least people who are trying to be faithful to the Scriptures— Either take the exception clauses referring to sex during the betrothal period between a Jew, like between Mary and uh, Joseph. He finds her pregnant, knows he was not the one, and so assumes that he needs to put her away as a righteous man, only to discover that the conception was supernatural. It was by the Spirit of God and not by another man. But sex during the betrothal period allowed to break off the relationship because there was no sex during that time between uh, husband and wife. And so they got a divorce. They're called husband and wife, though they're only betrothed. Uh, With that said, uh, the other view is that uh, the exception clause that Jesus is referring to is adultery after the marriage has been consummated. He doesn't even have that. So he's headed for trouble. And I know your heart is broken over it, but see if you can get that message and see if he'll listen to it and say, well, at least listen to this and tell me what you think. Okay. We've got a rather lengthy question here, but the bottom line is about the Sabbath. Wayne from Liberty Lake, Washington writes, uh, he first of all appreciates your teaching so much. He considers you his second pastor and would like you to recommend your top resource or resources for the uh, study of the early church fathers. I want to learn what they wrote, especially about them going to church on Sundays. My dad is Seventh-day Adventist. He tried to raise me that way, but it always confused me. My whole life has been full of condemnation and feeling like I'm not good enough because I don't keep the Sabbath like the Jews. He believes that I have the mark of the beast, and I'll go to hell if I continue going to church on Sunday. I understand how this could not be the mark of the beast. I always thought he was so intelligent until I started learning the scriptures on my own. Now I realize he may be intelligent, but not full of the Spirit. He does not bear the proper fruit. This has been a stumbling block most of my life, and I feel it has kept me from the true gospel until now. I'm finally free because of you. I chose not to stop communicating with him when I wanted to just write him off. I want to help him to see the truth so badly, but he's so aggressive. Since he is my earthly father, I'll honor him with love and will endure his wrath. I'm getting closer to finding the right scripture that will help. So that brings me to my second question about Luke 16, 16. It seems like Jesus is making a very clear statement that he is not preaching the old covenant. He's preaching something new, the kingdom, the new covenant. So when Jesus says, keep my commandments, he's talking about all his New Testament teachings, right? Not the commandments from the law and the prophets, but rather to love God and to love one another. If we love one another, do we fulfill the law and the law that is written on our hearts also based on love? So when he says, keep my commandments, we do that through love. And of course, confessing Jesus to others with love and compassion. If God is love, when I show someone love, am I not showing them who God is? And through the love, God works out his perfect will. 
wasn't the Sabbath of the Ten Commandments specifically given to his chosen people, the Jews? At that time, only the Jews were keeping the Sabbath. Gentiles were not, and Gentiles never needed to convert to Judaism. So the Sabbath was never something the Gentiles needed to observe in the New Covenant or, or the Old Covenant, only the Jews. In the New Covenant, the kingdom is more about not forsaking the Sabbath. A new day, the first day, once again, not the Sabbath, right? But a new day in remembrance of the resurrection. The Jews, I can't find that in Scripture. My dad is convinced that the Catholic Church changed the Sabbath to Sunday. I'd love to find evidence to the contrary. He also believes that Paul would roll over in his grave if he knew people considered his letters were considered to be Holy Scripture. He says the Catholic Church implanted him there, in there to deceive us. Could you please help me? I value you so much, and I'm looking forward to your response. Well, you might want to listen to my Genesis series, and I think it's either the third or fourth message in on my series on Genesis where I deal with the whole subject of the Sabbath. But to answer your question, what you are hearing is a typical Adventist argument. And, of course, they have created this aura of exclusivity. And there was a cultic-type group, that Seventh-day Adventists came out of, and Jehovah's Witness also came out of them. In both carries some really gross, erroneous doctrines. Someone asked about a question on Islam, and Rick brought up Kingdom of the Cults. That is an excellent resource, but Dr. Walter Martin includes Seventh-day Adventists in there. And the reason he includes Adventists is he'll say, look, there are Adventists who are born again, but they had so many aberrant doctrines that I need to include them in this book. For instance, one of the false doctrines that Adventists taught, Ellen G. White said that Jesus had a sin nature, he just never sinned. That's heretical. He never had a sin nature. He was conceived without sin. Um, And I will say to their credit that Adventists now deny that as false and to go against their basic founder and deny what she said is false was really a pretty big step on their behalf. But they create this R of exclusivity, kind of like JWs did initially saying only 144,000 would be saved. They got into trouble when their organization grew over 144,000, so they had to kind of reinterpret things in terms of what that meant. And Adventists want you to think that, well, the Roman Catholic Church under Constantine he, uh, he was the one who changed the day. He didn't change the day. All he did was, within the Roman Empire, he made it permissible for people to be able to worship freely on Sunday and not to have to work. And that was a huge step. But uh, in the first century, you find the church worshiping on the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 16, the Apostle Paul says, in the first day of the week. That's when you come and you bring your offering for the work of the Lord. Why the first day of the week? Because that was the day that they met on in lieu of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it was not just a a thing they pulled out of the air. But you're right, in Exodus 31, Jesus makes it very clear that the Sabbath was a special sign between Israel and him, the Lord, Jehovah. Um, We're out of time.